We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see so many of you on Labor Day weekend. I was like, do I start a series on Labor Day weekend? Do I wait? But I took a gamble, and uh, there's a lot of folks that were here in both services and tuned in, so that's exciting. Uh, I want to mention to you that the story of Nehemiah is really an incredible story on a lot of different levels. Uh, you can read this story through many different lenses and benefit greatly. For example, you can read this story through a leadership lens. If you're leading a family, if you're leading, managing any number of people, if you're part of any kind of an organization or entity, there are tremendous leadership lessons to extract. I will tell you, though, that when it comes to leadership, uh, the scripture has a much different starting point for leadership than does many worldly prescriptions. You might see echoes of like worldly leadership wisdom in the book of Nehemiah, and you might say, aha, but the starting point of leadership for the, the Christian, for Nehemiah, for example, is completely different, and that's what makes it so profoundly transformative. But you can read it through a leadership lens. Uh, you can read it through a personal uh, pastoral kind of lens, and I would say that if you're going through things in your life and your marriage is broken or your family is broken or relationships or you can read this book and almost follow it chapter by chapter. It almost gives you like a perfect prescription for what it looks like to seek healing. And so read it through that lens for sure. You can read this story through the lens of a church and what's it look like for us to be the people of God at this time and at this place? And it, it, in some ways, this is a continuation of the I Love My Church series. And, and what does it mean to love God's kingdom and be his people in the world? There's also a sense in which, as you read this story, uh, it speaks profoundly to salvation and redemption. Uh, that what you have in Nehemiah is you have the operation of how God is at work in our lives and in our world and what his will and what his purpose and plan is and how he brings about his purpose in extraordinary ways. We need to read it first and foremost, probably like theologically and biblically in understanding how God is bringing about his purpose in Christ in this world. So we're going to look at it through a lot of different lenses. Uh, so the story begins simply enough. It's an Old Testament book. You can find the book of Nehemiah on your phone. You can get a reader. Uh, you can open up your scriptures. I hope you'll do it. We're just going to look at the first couple of verses. It begins simple enough. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, uh, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. I know that sounds a little bit cryptic, but it's just referring to a different calendar than what we're used to. The story unfolds in late November, early December, and a man by the name of Nehemiah, who, by the way, we don't know nothing about until we come to this story. He's just kind of dropped in. Here's Nehemiah, 
And we don't know a lot about him at first, but he finds himself in a place called Susa. Susa was a militarized fortress city in Persia, in the Persian Empire. Uh, The story of Daniel that we spent some time going through a few years ago, Daniel once received a vision while standing in the palace of Susa. Remember, Daniel was part of the king's court. He served all these different kings from all these different nations. The story of Esther in your Bible uh, takes place in Susa. And the story of Esther is how God was providentially working through uh, unfathomable circumstances to bring about his purpose. And that's an incredible story that you can read. And Nehemiah is not unlike that story. Because God's going to work providentially through some unexpected dynamics to bring about revival for his people. So you might look at the story of, of Esther. Susa was the winter resting place of Persian kings. It was the Florida of the dark, you know, early ages or whatever, you know, where everybody would go during the winter. If you were a king and you wanted to be a, a snowbird, you'd go winterize over here in Susa. The palace would have been a spectacular sight. Uh, it was bolstered by 72 columns that stood anywhere from 65 to 80 feet high. How do you build stuff like that without caterpillar? I mean, how, like, how did they do it without cranes? And how did they get the stones up on those columns and stuff? Like, it was a wonder of the early world in, in many ways. But the building was the size of a football field. So it would have really caught your eye, and it would have really been a great place to be, a remarkable uh, architectural feat, all these things. And we'll soon learn that Nehemiah is a member of the royal court in Persia. Even though he was a foreigner, he was a member of the he was a cupbearer to the king. We'll talk about what all that means in time. But when I read this story, I don't want to go too far with this, but it's kind of like a metaphor, I think. Because here's Nehemiah, and he's in this fortress, and he's kind of in, you know, isolated off into this palace, and he's in the king's court, and, and there's a kind of world that he exists in that is very different from everywhere else in the Persian Empire. And let me take a shot at it this way. I have to confess this a little bit. It's a good thing, but it's also kind of a bad thing. You know, I, I've always felt that I've been a little bit sheltered throughout my life. You know, I didn't grow up in a perfect family, but I grew up in a godly family. And I had godly parents. And there was a kind of normalcy to that. And I certainly wasn't a perfect little angel growing up. If you meet people that know me, they'll tell you stuff. But I mean, but I could get in trouble at times. But for the most part, I really listened to my parents. And I took to heart that verse that talks about that if you listen to your parents, life will go long and it will go well for you. And I had other family members that didn't listen to my parents and life wasn't going well for them. And I figured that out real early on. And so I always wanted to, like, obey my parents and honor my parents. And that was just my headspace growing up. But I wasn't perfect. I'm just saying, like, that was a core thing. But I trusted, you know, like, that they knew what was best for me. And I knew that their guidance was intended to save me untold pain. And I was like, I don't need to go through pain to learn lessons. I mean, that's kind of like my philosophy. I, like, I don't have to be stupid in order to learn to be wise, you know? But I grew up in the church. And I was taught to love God and follow Jesus and walk in the spirit and, and love my church in the way that we talked about. 
Uh, we would set up chairs. We would serve. We would use our gifts like everybody was needed in the church. And even as a youngster, I mean, you were working all the time in the church. I was taught to see the world as a kind of mission field. My parents, when they moved to Hersher, started a church in our living room because they believed that our broken community most needed the hope of Christ. And so we wanted to share and, and share this life and share this hope outward with our community. But I got to thinking about this story, how sometimes we exist in two worlds. There's the world of Susa, where you have this citadel and you have this royal court and you have these, this big, these walls and, you, and you're living kind of in a bubble, right? And, and everything's lawful and peaceful and probably a certain reality there, right? But then you've got Judah in Jerusalem. And what's going on in the castle, so to speak, what's going on in the fortress is very different than the realities of what's going on out there in the kingdom and kingdoms of the world. In large part, maybe this is true for you, but not that I wasn't broken or our family wasn't broken, but brokenness was often something out there, external to our little worlds a lot of times. You know, I grew up feeling loved, feeling secure, having a roof over my head, never missed a meal. I got testimony, you know, uh, clothing to wear, good things to enjoy. The people in my life were safe relationships. It was like living in a spiritual fortress. It was like having a hedge of protection around me. Like Nehemiah, I might as well have been in a Susa, in a citadel or whatever. I grew up in a small town and there was overzealous policing often. And you couldn't so much as light off a lady finger without uh, causing, you know, a 911 call or something. I mean, that's what they dealt with, you know, if you were, no, I don't know if that's true, but... But I did light ladyfingers one time, and the police did not like that. But, you know, they'd have a conversation with your parents. But uh, if you acted up at school, the principal would paddle your rear with a fiberglass paddle. And your parents would call up livid and complain and be angry because he didn't leave bruises. You know, like they supported that action. It's a different world. But then, you know, you tune into CNN, and I would, like my mom always watched CNN. And you'd watch the chaos of the Middle East unfold and terrorist plots and the war with Iraq and all this bombs and missiles. And like, I'd flip through Time Magazine. Our family had a subscription. And you'd see pictures and you read stories of egregious suffering. And it would be right there in those photos. And you'd see the stories and you'd see the pain of where people were struggling with things around the world. You, if you're old enough, you might remember the efforts of pop music icons back in the day, joining hands across America singing, we are the world. And they were trying, like, there was times of awareness. There's famines, there's hunger, there's real world problems. We need to do something to respond to these things. In Hersher, your nightly news always came out of Chicago. And you, all, you heard about gangs and drugs and violence and murder and corruption. And it was always like, Wow, you just got a barrage of those kinds of headlines. Sometimes our family would host a missionary, and that was always an incredible experience. A missionary would come, and our family would, would, would house them and feed them, and they would share stories. And even as a youngster, you know, you have these kind of windows that open up, and you realize that the reality here isn't necessarily the same as the reality around. 
But again, brokenness was something out there. And, and maybe for Nehemiah, brokenness was something out there. I remember uh, when I was younger, there was a little boy named Arturo who uh, moved in next door. He's being fostered by our neighbors. And uh, Arturo and I, he had a very unique name. We'd spend hours sitting on a swing set in his backyard. And Arturo grew up in a very different world than I did. He wasn't loved. He'd never been protected. He'd known hunger and nakedness, literally. He couldn't remember a time he ever felt safe in life. He'd been abused and neglected in every imaginable way, but also in every unthinkable way. And Arturo would talk, and I would just sit on that swing, and I would just listen, like with tears in my eye. I grew up in this kind of fortress over here, in, in these safe spaces and these walls, but Arturo grew up out there, so to speak. And I don't know why our lives were so different, and, and I've often prayed, you know, Lord, Help me understand why, how people can be in two very different realities, two very different places, and I'm thankful, but there's two different worlds often. And, and that's how it often is for us as Christians and, and as a church, that we can exist kind of in a bubble, but then there's other things out there, right? Not that things are perfect in the bubble. There's brokenness in the bubble. I'm not implying that in any way. But... If you've grown up in a good Christian family, or moral family even, if you've grown up American, if you've grown up affluent, and by the way, you have, every single person in this room, even if you're on welfare, you're in the top uh, 5% of affluence worldwide. Uh, you have tremendous privileges and affluence beyond anything that you can even imagine or describe. If you grew up with the presumption, the expectation that most of the people around me are generally good, not that there aren't any characters once in a while, but most people are good, and they do good, and most people are not corrupted or whatever. If you've grown up feeling that society is generally lawful, not that there aren't miscarriages of justice or overzealous this, that, or whatever, but you might take a lesson from Nehemiah, because I feel I have to take a lesson from Nehemiah. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, if we'd spend some time sitting in the swing, so to speak, with other people in their pain, asking and really listening, we'd realize we live in a terrifically, profoundly broken world. And if we'd read scripture, we'd also start to realize how terrifically and profoundly broken we are. We can't have a castle mentality, a citadel, fortress, wintering mentality where we kind of vacate off and isolate and separate and cocoon off by ourselves away from. There's a whole kingdom out there and kingdoms. And there's a really big God and a great God that we serve. And, and, and there's a lot that God wants to do beyond our little bubble, so to speak. So I'm thinking of Nehemiah through that kind of lens and asking myself, you know, what does God want to do? not just with my brokenness, but through us as his instrument also serving others. So the story of Nehemiah turns pretty quick. One of his brothers by the name of Hanani 
visits along with some other men. Now, this sounds kind of casual. They had a nice little visit and some tea and some coffee or whatever. It probably wasn't like that. We can assume that Hananiah is probably a literal relative, blood brother of Nehemiah, but he might be a spiritual brother, a fellow Jew. It's hard to know exactly. But Hananiah arrives from out there, out beyond the bubble, out beyond the fortress walls. And you can imagine Nehemiah in the king's court and and dealing with the daily flow and work and labor of whatever he had to do in the king's court. And there's a certain reality and a certain task list and and flow to everything and, and also a certain kind of status quo to what he did probably. And here comes somebody from outside the bubble who's traveled a very long distance, by the way, 900 miles, not in an air-conditioned SUV or something like that, but, but probably walking and, and maybe riding. And like, who knows how they went 900 miles back in the day. But it would have been a, a, a trip with tremendous hardships. They came all the way from Judah in Jerusalem to Susa because there was something going on that they needed to let Nehemiah know about. And Nehemiah questions them about the state of Jerusalem. How are things back home in our small town of Jerusalem? You know, how's things back home in Judah? And how's everybody that survived the Babylonian captivity and the waylaying of all these armies? How's everybody doing? How are the survivors? And, you know, I, I, I think right here I want to hit the pause button. Because we might read over his name too quickly, but I think you should circle the name Hanani. Because sometimes the the act of leadership is more what Hanani does than what Nehemiah does. Hanani realized there was a problem, and he went to great lengths to try to seek somebody out that he thought might have the solutions and might be able to help the situation that was close and near to his heart in Jerusalem. Hanani... Had he not made this trip, had he not raised alarm, had he not shared about the trouble and disgraces and things that were going, maybe this story wouldn't even exist in our scriptures. Our world needs Hananiah's. I remember uh, the first time I interviewed for a church and I was sitting down with a group of elders and it was a small church and there was a lot going on in this church. And I remember asking the elders like, so what do you guys think about the community and, and what impact is the church having in the community and, and you know, are, are we doing evangelism and outreach and, and what kinds of things? Are you? And the elders sat there in total silence. And then one of them finally said, well, that's kind of why we've reached out to you is because we need help. And we need someone maybe to show us what that looks like and teach us and involve us in that because we can't figure it out. Hannah and I is that guy. And sometimes that's the catalytic thing that needs to happen is some humility and to say, help, you know. Anyhow, I don't think that's uh, too much of an aside there. I think that's a pretty important thing to to circle and, and think about. But they said to Nehemiah, the remnant that's in the province of Judah, the people who survived the exile, they are actually in great trouble and they're in disgrace. They're in trouble because they're vulnerable and unprotected and it's a very dangerous and volatile situation. They're in disgrace because if, you, if, if you're Israel and your God is the God of Israel, Yahweh, who's done so much, where is that God now when your whole city is in ruins? They were in disgrace. 
There is a disconnect between who they proclaim their God to be and the realities that they felt that they were living in. The walls were broken down. The gates had been burned with fire. So a little bit of context. It was because of Israel's own wickedness, their idolatry, their blatant disregard for God's commandments, their stubbornness, their hard-heartedness, their callousness, all these things. Israel was the reason for their own demise. It wasn't because God had broken any promises. It's because Israel had turned away from the promise-keeping, faithful God of Israel. They'd turned away. And they were being chastised. They were being chastened, better word. They were being disciplined by these invading nations to turn back to God. And they were doubling down on their stubbornness. We studied the book of Daniel, and Daniel uses very vivid apocalyptic images to describe how Judah was waylaid like one nation after another rose and came to power and none of them were hospitable or showed much favor at all to Jerusalem. Uh, And so in the vision of Daniel, you had the Babylonians, you had the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and then Daniel says, but the kingdom of Christ is coming, so buckle up, that's Daniel. But it's difficult for us to imagine. See, we're kind of in a bubble of sorts. We don't know what it's like to have our homeland overrun by brutal, merciless conquerors. We watch it on TV. You might put yourself in the place of somebody in the Middle East, or you might put yourself in the place of a Ukrainian or or any number of people. And we don't know what it's like to be overrun and conquered by a merciless army or king or ruler. Judah's enemies left no stone unturned. They would lay waste to everything in their path. It's like a tornado went through wherever these folks went. They didn't leave cities standing, walls standing, temples standing. No stone was left unturned. They just decimated everything, including people and families and their identity and their safety, all these things. They defiled everyone and everything as a matter of business. They took the nation's finest young men, like the story of Daniel, and they would take a young man like Daniel and they'd make him a eunuch and conscript him into service. And it's likely that the same thing happened to Nehemiah, that in serving in the king's court that he was emasculated. So these are brutal people and brutal times and there's brutal nations. And and where's God when all this is starting to unfold? 140 years before this story, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, left the city of Jerusalem in ruins. Sometime later, a man by the name of Zerubbabel came along and rebuilt the temple But the temple was just a shadow of its previous glory. The the temple that King David laid out that Solomon would build was glorious. It was amazing compared to what was rebuilt in its place. It was lackluster. And when people saw the rebuilt temple, uh, those from the previous generation wept bitterly because it seemed so pathetic comparatively. Around 450 B.C., Ezra, a time later, he would try to rebuild the wall and the gates in Jerusalem, but he failed. It was seen as a political move. It was something that created a lot of revolts and, and, and danger for the people in Jerusalem. And so it was best not to provoke and trigger people, so don't rebuild the walls. At that time, there was 
a small revival in Jerusalem of about 50,000 survivors, and they thought that was going to be their moment, but it wasn't. So there's a status quo, not just in Susa with Nehemiah, there's a status quo in Judah where sometimes brokenness is the status quo. And trying to undo the brokenness actually creates greater danger and threats. And, and so what happens is a lot of times we find even in our lives, even in our organizations, churches, our government, wherever, whatever the context is, often we find ourselves maintaining a status quo of brokenness out of fear. And that's Jerusalem and that's Judah. And it wasn't that anybody didn't try or whatever else. It's that they tried and maybe failed for different reasons. During the days of the Persian Empire... There was a lot of different revolts that were breaking out in different places. There was a big revolt that broke out in Egypt and took like five years to quell. There was a revolt that broke out in Mesopotamia. You look at a world map, you can see the Persians were having great difficulty subduing their own kingdom. So you conquer all this stuff, but then you have to bring order, and they were having a hard time. And whenever somebody would come along and want to rebuild a temple or a city wall or a city gate or, or do anything... You know, it was perceived as a threat. It was perceived with suspicion. Uh, the philosophy of the Persians was you don't let dangers gather. You don't let strength build up in your kingdom. You know, you keep everybody like, aggressively, violently, quickly, you dissipate any kind of threats, right? That was the policy. So how are you going to rebuild a city and gates and walls and a temple and, and a national identity and a people and an empire that is so insecure and feels so threatened and, and so poorly managed? Like in Jerusalem, you had a stubborn, troublesome, seemingly unchangeable status quo. And Nehemiah is told, those who survive, they're in trouble, they're in disgrace, the walls are down, the gates have been burned. I don't think we have an excuse to ignore the realities that lay sometimes just outside our little bubble. Uh, I was thinking that this book kind of is a challenge to us as a church, as an American church, as a modern church. There's no excuse for us not to raise our heads and look at, Nehemiah had to do this. Jesus in Matthew 9, it talks about how he went to all the towns and villages, teaching, preaching, he was healing every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus always had his head on a pivot. He was always had his head up. He was always looking and responding and was very aware of the broken world in which he ministered. But his disciples, he had to teach them to do the same. He had to say, you know, the harvest is abundant. But the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. It's like we can sit in here, but right across the street, there's these vast cornfields. They're ripe for harvest. Maybe we'll have a bumper harvest this year with all the rain. Who knows? But if there's no workers and no equipment, you know, we have to train ourselves to have a certain focal point. And, and that's what Jesus tells his disciples is this harvest is ready, but nobody's responding to it. And, and pray because you're going to be one of the first responders to this harvest. So what does it take for us to see what God sees? Maybe it's as simple as lifting up our heads. Maybe it's as simple as asking questions, listening, looking. But I can tell you the status quo in both Susa and Judah 
needs to change. The status quo within the bubble needs to change from one of comfort and complacency to compassion and commission. And the status quo in the world needs to change from one of brokenness to one of hope and healing and grace instead of disgrace, right? So when Nehemiah hears these words, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's overwhelming to think about the harvest and how many workers and how much, like, what is God going to do with this mess? It's too big to think about for any one person. When Nehemiah heard these words, he sat down and he wept. He said that I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Do you remember I told you that spiritual leadership has a different starting point? If there's a different starting point, that's it right there. Circle that verse. Because if you want to lead your family well, if you want to bring healing, if you want to be God's instrument, whether you do that from a, a, a spouse, husband, wife seat, a parent seat, a teacher seat, a government seat, an organizational seat, a business leader seat, whatever seats you sit in, this is the starting point. I find Jesus' teaching and Nehemiah's example very instructive personally. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Nehemiah sat down, wept, mourned, fasted, prayed to the God of heaven and earth. I know it's not true for everyone. It's true for the majority. We've been so insulated for so long. It's going to take a miracle for us to change our focus and to learn to see not just our own lives, but our world through God's eyes. But I will tell you this, we serve a very big God and we live in a very big world that needs a very big God. And Jesus taught us not just to pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers, he also taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That God's kingdom, like his will needs to be done in this world. That's what's needed, that's the solution, right? There was clearly a physical crisis in Jerusalem, a physical crisis in Judah. You could point to physical, tangible things, walls, gates, things that were broken, that weren't working. Uh, I think it's our impulse to always make a physical calculation when a problem presents itself or a crisis comes along. We always are looking for some physical, worldly solution to whiplash into. We have very little patience for any other kind of conversation than, hey, just tell me what to do. Give me a YouTube video. Tell me how to fix this thing. Well, what if our biggest problems aren't primarily physical or material? What if our biggest problems are primarily spiritual? And what if our physical brokenness is in fact a reflection of an even greater and deeper underlying spiritual crisis? I'm convinced that until we understand the true scope, the true nature and reality of our brokenness, we're never going to find substantive healing. You might find some relief. You might find some comfort. You might find a Band-Aid here and there. But if it's healing for brokenness that you're looking for in your life and in God's world, until we understand the nature of the problem and seek what God's provided we're probably not going to get to any place of healing. You know, I find it so extraordinary that Nehemiah had the wherewithal to get on his knees 
and look first to God to fast and pray. Like, as important as it was for him to listen to his friends, and I'm glad he did because he became aware of something. Nehemiah also knew how important it was to sit down and listen to the God of heaven and earth. Not just to listen to man, but to listen to God himself. You know, for a lot of us, and I include myself in this, we fall out of the practice of praying in the way that we need to pray. But we especially fall out of the practice of things like fasting. When you take fasting and you add that to prayer, fasting enabled Nehemiah to completely concentrate wholly on an issue that was at hand, even to the neglect of his own physical needs. His physical needs became a kind of prompt to keep him in a place of prayer. Jesus supernaturally prayed and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. What was he doing? Jesus was sharpening his focus on the spiritual mission before him. Not that there weren't physical dynamics to his healing and and miracles and the works that he did. Not that there wasn't a physical dynamic to what Nehemiah would do. He would rebuild the wall. He would rebuild the gates. He would do these physical, tangible, kind of real-world things. But what was most important was to get a laser beam focus on the spiritual nature of the crisis and the, the nature of the spiritual mission before him. And Jesus and Nehemiah and Paul and many others exemplify that. Now, whenever there's trouble... Our government treats almost every problem, without exception, as a physical, material, economic, resource type problem. And our government, both, no matter who it is, they throw trillions of dollars hoping that something will work. They'll throw trillions of dollars at programs, at, at, at different kinds of things, right? And, and we see that and it's like, ugh. They throw billions of dollars at stuff. But here's what I want to say. Churches do the same thing. Churches hope that buildings will catapult the spiritual mission of God. They hope financial campaigns, staff hires, if we just got the right person or personality or or whatever, state-of-the-art worship technology, cutting-edge worship, uh, programs, uh, the church in America particularly has collectively not just spent billions, but maybe as much as trillions of dollars. Our, our churches are more flush with cash. More money is being spent now than by any group of Christians ever in the history of the world. And yet everyone agrees that the net church is in dramatic decline. See, churches do the same thing. We throw physical, material, monetary like solutions, but maybe there's something deeper going on that needs to be addressed. Uh, I'm not just going to pick on the church and the government. I've got to pick on marriages, when the marriage is failing, when the family is broken. What do people say? They say, well, let's get a better home. Let's spend money. Let's get into a better place, and, and we'll be happy, and it'll fix things. Uh, let's get better jobs. Let's get a new car. Uh, let's have a, a baby or another baby. You know, that'll bring everyone together and, and everybody will be so rested and joyful, right? Let's get a puppy or let's move to another state, you know, across where the grass is greener. Let's divorce. You know, if you want to spend money, that's one way to do it right there. The attorneys will, will, will get everything. Let's remarry. 
You see, when the soul's in trouble, what do we do? We turn on the television. We expand the cable subscription so we get even more things. We veg on the internet. You know, tick tock, tick tock, there goes the whole day, right? We go shopping. We eat finer and finer foods. We drink, smoke something. You got all kinds of things you can do now legally. You know, we binge, gamble. Sometimes we say, you know, I've been trying to do it God's way. I've been trying to be a good person and law-abiding and righteous. We give in to evil and we say, maybe that's for the birds. Maybe I just need to live in the flesh and, and descend into my carnality and just do something for me. We try to entertain ourselves, distract ourselves. We exercise. We take pills. We go on diets. We get therapy. I mean, I, what if our whiplashing into these physical, material kinds of things, what if that's not the real starting point for healing? When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heavens. You know, when Jesus preached a sermon on the mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That was the first thing that came out of his mouth. That maybe the starting point is that we need to be poor in spirit. We need to mourn and, and get into a place of repentance. When was the last time that you really quieted yourself before the God of heavens? This weekend is Labor Day. We celebrate all the fruits of all of our labor. And, and, and uh, you know, when's the last time we came before God and just got quiet and unplugged from the labor and say, God, before I go rushing into doing more, what is it that you would have me be and do in my world, in your world? God, what's your will for this broken kingdom, this broken nation? What's your will for this broken state? What's your will for my broken marriage or family or relationships? What's your will for my broken life, for my broken friends, for this broken city that I live within? God, what are the spiritual, right, dynamics that you'd have me see and attend to? Paul would say, you know, our battle's not against flesh and blood. This isn't just a carnal, fleshly equation that we're dealing with here. It's a spiritual equation first and foremost. And it requires that we take our struggle to a different place, a place of prayer and mourning and fasting and quietness. What's it going to take for us to start there? That's my invitation to you this morning. It's for you to sit in quietness before God. Spend a number of days, okay, one, two, five, ten months. It's not wasted. This is the beginning place for broken people to come before God. God's promises are unbroken. And he's offering them to us if we would turn to him and, and listen. Next week we're going to talk about what it looks like when Nehemiah gets his mind around God's unbroken promises and actually trusts them. Look at the thing that is unleashed. The revival, the redemption, the healing that gets unleashed. The status quos that get shattered and broken so that healing can be ushered in. Look at what happens in this story. Read ahead. And we'll, we'll check in next week and continue this story. Dear Father, right now we just want you to have our attention, our meditation, our prayers, 
our mourning, our fasting. We want to see what you see. We want to understand the spiritual and set aside this whiplash and all these other things for just, Father, get our attention by your spirit. Lead us deeper into your word. Show us what you'd have us see in this season of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.